and a hush fell over the room. How many times have we heard or read or even lived that dramatic phrase? The ball arcs through the air or across the green. The maestro's baton is lifted and musician's fingers are ready. The dancer waits, poised for her first movement. The bride stands in the doorway with the light behind her. Breath fills the baby's lungs for the first time. A grown child stands at the top of their stairs in their first adult finery. The final glance into the memories of a now empty house as the door closes for the last time. The still moment as a soul slips away. And a hush fell over the room. The hush, the stillness, tells us something momentous is about to happen. It begs us to pay attention and to wait and see. And to wait for awe. And sometimes we do. But usually we rush on, barely noting the stillness as we make our next plan, burst into applause, cry out, flash a picture, fill the silence, disturb the peace. And in our madness of sound and action, we forget or ignore the words of the one who created from silence. The one who would be called the Prince of Peace. Be still. Be still and know. Be still and know that I am God. We were knit together in a peaceful place. Our hearts long for stillness. They were created for quiet. There are whispers there of majesty. There are murmurings of assurance, gentle reminders of love, heavenly peace. And a hush fell over the world. As stars glittered in the night sky and shepherds moved their loud cacophony of sound in the flocks across the hills, their noisy movements were lost in that landscape. But the heavens were poised, weren't they? The moment before the voices of the host rang out, surely there was a hush. It was finally broken by a woman's groans, and then by that baby's first breath ringing out. This year, this season, let a hush fall over you. Wait. Be still. And know 
and know. Father God, you are the one. You are the one who longs to speak to us in the peaceful, quiet places in our hearts. Thank you for stirring that peace in us. Thank you for whispering to us when you could thunder at us. We pray even now for peace in our world for peace in our communities, for peace in our streets and our homes. But mostly, Father, right now, we pray for peace in our hearts, peace between us and you. A moment of silence, a moment of peace where we can hear what you have to say. It's in the name of the Prince of Peace that we pray. Amen. Well, good morning, church family. And um, if this is your first Sunday here at Windsor Road, if you're a newcomer, um, we're just so delighted to have you here in worship with us on this second Sunday of Advent. And um, as Robbie uh, and Liz read the scriptures this morning uh, with their beautiful children. This is the second Sunday of Advent, the candle of peace. And so we're going to be talking about peace this morning. And I thought I would begin with this question. What do you think of when you think of the word peace? When you hear the word peace, what do you have in mind? What's your version of peace? For some of us, peace means peace and quiet. The kids are finally in bed and ah, last, right? It's a sigh of peace. For others of us, peace is another kind of quiet. For some of us, peace means I don't have to argue with my mom. Well, I don't have to squabble with my spouse. Well, I don't have a fight with my former. For some of us, peace is my coworker is sick today and I can leave my door open. I don't have to listen to their claptrap. Thank you, Lord. Peace. Peace. In other words, peace as the cessation of hostility or an annoyance or an argument or a sound. Peace means cease fire. Cease fire. In our scripture reading this morning, Luke says that suddenly there was an with the angel, a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. On earth, peace? Really? We want to believe what the angel said. We, we want to believe that there's a morsel of truth to the Christ, Christmas proclamation of peace. But, you know, when we look around, it's really hard to see what the angel was talking about. There's no peace in Ukraine or Syria or Iraq or Yemen. And there's certainly no peace in Ferguson or New York. What did the angels mean when they announced the arrival of peace? What was that all about? Maybe the problem is we were just born in the wrong century. Maybe if we could just go back to the days of yesteryear when life was simple and peaceful and tranquil, 
Maybe we would know the peace that the angels are talking about if we could just huddle up in that sweet Hallmark Christmas card along with the angels in Luke chapter 2. It's a pleasant fantasy. If you think that, you should know this. According to the first century historian Josephus, on or around the same year Christ was born, a Roman general by the name of Quintilius Verus crucified 2,000 Jewish revolutionaries right outside the city of Jerusalem. Now, Bethlehem's just a few miles from Jerusalem. You couldn't miss those 2,000 fellow citizens on your way to the holy city pinned to crosses along the way, 2,000. It was an unmistakably clear message from Rome. Peace comes at the point of a sword. Peace comes under the threat of a violent, brutal, long, torturous death. The peace of Rome, the Pax Romana, 200 years of top-down martial law peace imposed by the legions of Caesar. Is that what the angels had in mind? Is that the best we can expect of peace? Is there a better kind of peace? Well, there is, and we see it at the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. These two chapters, Genesis 1 and 2, show us what God had in mind concerning peace. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And after each creation day, the scripture says, God said that this is good. And then he made the man and the woman. He saw all he'd made and he declared, this is very good. Very good. God created the man and the woman in a way unique from any other part of creation. No animal, no plant. No angel in heaven is said to be made in the image of God. There's something distinct about us humans that make us different from all of creation. We are icons of the Almighty. Of all of creation, we are God's divinely appointed representatives. In Genesis 1 and 2, God places Adam and Eve as priests, as rulers He commissioned them to rule as trustees over this temple garden of Eden. Eden, it's a Hebrew word, and it means delight. Delight. And if you could just simply rest in this picture of Eden, if you could just just rest in this delight, you'd see what God had in mind. And the word... That describes it all. It's a, it's a Hebrew word. It's the Hebrew word. We call it peace. But it's so much more. It's the word shalom. Shalom. Shalom means universal flourishing. Wholeness and delight. Shalom is that rich state of affairs. In which natural needs are satisfied. And natural gifts are fruitfully employed. Shalom is that state of being that that inspires joyful wonder in who God is. The God who opens his doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom. 
Shalom is when we look to God and walk with God and lean on God and delight in God. Shalom is the way things ought to be. You see, biblical peace is more than just a cessation of hostilities. It's more than just a ceasefire. Biblical peace touches our emotions, our attitudes, our hearts. Biblical peace, shalom, prompts us to act in love with those whom you enjoy. Shalom, shalom. I enjoy who God is. I enjoy where I am. I enjoy who he's put me with, and I, am, I enjoy who he made me to be. Is there such a place? Oh, yes. Now, can you imagine a place where you can give and receive love? A place where you can feel safe? Where you feel visible? A place where you feel that others are for you? A place where you can support and be supported? A place where you can hear and be heard? A place where you can enjoy the physical and intellectual and racial and artistic distinctives? A place where you can believe the best of others? A place where you don't have to be suspicious, where you don't have to prove yourself to anyone, where you don't have to feel tense and nervous and fidgety around anyone. You don't have to worry about how people would respond if they knew the real you because they see you, the total you, and there's total love, total unity, total harmony, total peace, total shalom. Shalom on earth, peace on earth. I'm telling you, this level of intensity concerning peace and shalom, it existed when God created the heavens and the earth. And if you've ever longed for this, it's because you were made for this. We were created to be in shalom, at peace with our creator, and to actually call him not our creator, but our father. Our Father, to enjoy God our Father and to know to the depths of our very being that He enjoys us. I want that, don't you? Well, what happened? (laughs) Genesis chapter 3 happened. That's what happened. There's this horrible moment in Genesis chapter 3 when God's walking in the garden in the cool of the day and he's going to meet Adam and Eve as he's done. And and yet this time they're hiding. They're trying to be invisible. It should be a picture of shalom. It it should be a picture of, of peace and community and safety and unity. It should be a picture of God walking in the cool of the day with his friends but it's not. It's not a picture of peace. Instead of peace, there's panic. Instead of unity, there's separation. Instead of joy, there's fear. And God asks Adam, where are you? Now listen, God never asks a question that he doesn't already know the answer to. <laughs> Why does he ask? Because he wants to teach. He wants to teach. He asks Adam, where are you? And Adam responds, well, I heard you coming, and I was afraid Because I was naked, so I hid. And then God asks this question. It still echoes in our consciences today. Genesis 3.11, God says, who told you you were naked? Who told you you were naked? How do you know you were naked, Adam? You see, when you're experiencing the shalom peace of God, you don't have to cover up. You don't have to hide. You don't have to sneak around. When you're experiencing shalom, there's just this sense of self-forgetfulness because I'm just focusing so much on God and others and 
I'm not thinking about myself. But that's not what happened here. The shalom was shattered. The shalom was vandalized. The peace ruptured, exploded. God then says, did you eat of the tree that I told you not to eat of? And then Adam says something that just shows how ruptured the peace really was. You know what his first response was? First response. Did you eat of the tree that I told you not to eat of? His first response of, the woman you gave me. There's leadership. (laughs) The woman you gave me. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. So he blames her, and then he blames God for giving her to him. Ruptured peace with God always leads to ruptured peace with one another. When vertical peace is shattered, horizontal peace shatters too. Oh, and then there's the environment. Driven from the paradise, the delight of Eden, their relationship with the earth is now one of thorns and thistles. The earth is cursed because of Adam and Eve. And God says your physical body will decay to the very dust in which you're going to toil to grow your food, and you can embalm your body and put your body in a coffin or protect it in a vault, but here it is. Dust you are, and dust you will return. Ruptured peace. Ruptured peace with God. Ruptured peace with one another. Ruptured peace with oneself. Ruptured peace with one's environment. How did that, how was Shalom vandalized? Here's how. It happened when Adam and Eve chose to find peace in something other than God. That's what the forbidden fruit was about. It was a test of where you're going to find your peace. And Adam and Eve thought that they could find their Shalom. They thought they could find their peace apart from God, which leads me to this question of us. What are you chasing right now that you may not even realize you're chasing that that you think is going to give you peace? Well, if I could just marry that girl, I'd have peace. Or if I could just get that job, I'd have peace. Or if I could just get my way, I'd have peace. Or if my children would just appreciate me more, encourage me more, affirm me more, then I'd have peace. If, 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 then I'd have peace. Whatever peace you're looking for, you've got to find it from somewhere. And what we learn from Genesis is that the brokenness of our world comes from the fact that we have passionately pursued peace In creation instead of the creator. We have pursued peace from below instead of from above. And you will never find peace from below. Ever. Ever. The only thing you'll find from below is ruptured peace in every corner and crevice in the world. Romans chapter 8 verses 21 and 23 tell us that. Romans 8, 21 and 23 says, Creation itself is in bondage to corruption and it groans. It groans. Why? Because shalom has been vandalized. Peace has ruptured. And this leads me to teach us two words this morning that I want us to, I want us to walk out of here learning. You're not going to hear these words in any other place other than like church or seminary. Okay? They're the words, total depravity. Total depravity. You're not going to hear total depravity at Target. You're not going to hear that. You're not going to hear that at the State Farm Center. You're going to hear that in a place like church. You're going to hear that in a place like Urbana Theological Seminary. You will. Okay? What is that? What is total depravity? Well, let's just break it down. Okay? Total That's pretty easy. Complete. 
without exception. No exclusions, etc. Total. Depravity. What's that? Moral corruption. Wickedness. Evilness. And the like. Total depravity. But when we put them together, what does that mean? Well, here's what it doesn't mean. Okay? Total depravity does not mean that you're a little Satan. Okay? Doesn't mean that. Doesn't mean that we're as evil as demons. Doesn't mean that you're as evil as Hitler or Osama bin Laden. Not what that means. Total depravity. Well, what's it mean then? It means this. Total depravity means there is no place in this world where peace has not been ruptured. No place. Concerning peace, our world has ruptured. Concerning peace, our government has ruptured. Economic models, whether family, command, market, mixed, they're all ruptured. Our work life has ruptured peace. Our relationships have ruptured peace. Our health, ruptured peace. Our climate, ruptured. How we feel about ourselves, ruptured. Total depravity. Nothing escapes the rupture of peace. Nothing. Does that make sense? And so when we hear of events such as Ferguson, Missouri, or New York, racial strife is evidence of ruptured peace. And furthermore, the ruptured peace causes me to make careless assumptions when I discuss these matters. For instance... Do I assume that all African Americans feel exactly the same way about Ferguson? I wouldn't make that assumption about Caucasian Americans. Why would I assume that of African Americans or Latinos or Asian Americans or Native Americans? You know, maybe I should listen and gain perspective, something we learn weekly in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 13, if one gives an answer before he hears, that is folly and shame. So, I've been in a season of listening. I listened to Valina Claiborne, who reminded me that this is a brokenness issue. I listened to an insightful blog by my sister in Christ named Michelle who reminded me that African Americans are not a monolithic group. Since 1979, I've been mentored by my high school chaplain and lifelong teacher, an Episcopal priest, Masud Ibn Sajulah. And then I listened to two very important voices by two men named Benjamin. The first Benjamin is Benjamin Watson. Do you know Benjamin Watson? He plays tight end for the New Orleans Saints. And concerning the events of Ferguson, Benjamin Watson wrote these words. He said, I'm angry because the stories of injustice that have been passed down for generations seem to be continuing before our very eyes. I'm frustrated because music and movies glorify these types of police-citizen altercations and promote an invincible attitude that continues to get young men killed in real life away from the safety of movie sets and music studios. I'm fearful because in the back of my mind, I know that although I'm a law-abiding citizen, I could still be looked on as a threat to those who don't know me. 
I'm embarrassed because the looting and law-breaking only confirm the stereotypes in the minds of many. I'm sad because another young life was lost from his family. I'm sympathetic because I wasn't there, so I don't know exactly what happened. I'm offended because of the insulting comments I've seen that are insensitive to the pain of others. I'm confused because I don't know why it's so hard to obey a policeman. And I'm confused because I don't know why some policemen abuse their power. I'm introspective because sometimes I'm just as prejudiced as the people I point fingers at. I'm hopeless because at some point my little children are going to inherit the weight of being a minority and all that it entails. I'm hopeful because at some point we're going to realize that the problem is not a skin problem, it's a sin problem. Sin is the reason we rebel against authority. Sin is the reason we abuse our authority. Sin is the reason we are racist and prejudiced and lie to cover for our own. Sin is the reason we riot and loot and burn. But I'm encouraged because God has provided a solution for sin through his son, Jesus Christ, and with it, a transformed heart and mind. That's a good word from Benjamin Watson. The other Benjamin who taught me is my 26-year-old son, Benjamin Boltinghouse. I don't know what you talked about over your Thanksgiving meal, but at the Bolting House, the subject of Ferguson was brought up around the table by my wife, who never seems to shy away from those touchy issues. And she asked for insight from both our son, a Caucasian-American cop, and his wife, our African-American daughter-in-law, Ablaza. And so Ben said, well... Here's what I think. And he read to us a response that he had given to someone who asked him about the events concerning Ferguson. And Ablaza was right on the same page. Ben wrote, First and foremost, I think it's a tragedy that a young man lost his life. Above all, that's the worst thing. As a police officer, I think it's entirely conceivable that the officer felt as though his life was in danger and that in the heat of the moment, he truly believed that it was going to be either him or the young man. Ben's talking about Ferguson now. He said, even just having been on the streets of another city for six months, I know that, quote-unquote, witnesses will lie and or withhold information because they just don't trust or like the police. Nevertheless, I am keenly aware that institutional racism is a real thing in America and that everyone, especially white people, are trained from a young age to think that black people, especially black males, are dangerous. And while it may have still been a real reaction, the officer's fear for his life may have been enhanced by that. And if the young man had been white or Asian or Latino, the officer may have taken an extra second before pulling the trigger. I just think that's the reality of the way we're raised by our culture to think about black males. Unfortunately, just like there are people in the ghetto that will lie to the police because they feel like it protects their community, there are certainly still officers out there who would cover up evidence that was recovered on the scene of a shooting that was incriminating towards the officer. And then Ben said this, At the end of the day, 
the important thing to keep in mind as Christians is that politics isn't going to save people. Jesus is. We should always be working to stop injustice, but our focus needs to be on Christ as we're called to be his disciple makers on earth. I'm so proud of him. And I think that's the hardest truth for us to swallow, quite frankly. Ben's last sentence. Our focus needs to be on Christ as we're called to be his disciple makers on earth. Jesus is going to save people. That's the hardest truth. That's the hardest truth to swallow about Ferguson or New York, the issue of race between whites and blacks in our country, or Hoodoos and Tutsis in, in Rwanda, or Haitians and Dominicans, or Israelis and Palestinians. The hardest truth to accept is that Jesus Christ is the only hope for peace. When we try to look for solutions, Jesus is the only solution. We try to file off the rust of racism or classism or corruption, and we try to do that with laws or public policies or economic models, but what Christianity has to offer is not just a new and improved file. Rather, Christianity offers the miracle of transformation the supernatural miracle of resurrecting the corruptible into the incorruptible. Isn't that what he did with you? Peace on earth can only come from somewhere, from above, from our heavenly Father. You'll never find peace from below. Peace only comes from above. What I'm trying to say, church, is this. You will only find peace from the Prince of Peace. That's the hardest truth to remember. And here's why. Everybody knows there's a peace problem. Everybody admits to that. Everybody knows that there's a peace problem between ourselves. Everybody knows there's a peace problem between ourselves and the world and the environment. Everybody knows even what it's like in our own hearts to feel conflicted about peace. Everyone, everyone. That said, it is extremely difficult to convince people that there's no chance of repairing the peace with others Unless we first repair the peace with God, it's vertical first, then horizontal. We must repair the peace with God. There it is. But can we? Can we? Can we repair the peace with God? And the answer is no. We can't. We can't give enough, serve enough, Build enough, work enough to repair the peace. We can't. But God can. And God has. Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. God in Christ has come to bring peace as the Prince of Peace. He's come to bring himself. He is the peace we so desperately need. Peace is not simply the cessation of hostilities. Peace is not peace by gunpoint. Peace is not the silencing of the weaker by the dominion of the stronger. Peace comes through the birth of Jesus. Jesus infiltrated this world of unpeace. He was not afraid to enter the muck and the mud of our brokenness. He didn't live in Wayne Manor either. 
He didn't have Alfred the butler to look after him. He was not protected from injustice. He experienced firsthand the effects of ruptured peace. He felt the heat of temptation. He witnessed the squalor and brutality of this hard world. He heard profanity. He lived next door to the hopeless cries of the oppressed. And yet he came. He came to create a new community. He came to fashion a new set of relationships. He came to bring peace to fathers and mothers and husbands and wives and singles and marrieds and Roman soldiers and Pharisees and religious leaders. He came to bring peace to those who wear skinny slacks and those who wear pleated slacks. He came to befriend those with button-down collar shirts or crew necks or v-necks or turtlenecks or mock necks or no necks. He came to bring peace to lepers and prostitutes, to sex offenders and biblical scholars. He came to bring peace to politicians and police officers, as well as accountants and executives. No one was invisible to him. I mean no one. Jesus saw the widow who offered her last two coins to the temple. Jesus saw the Roman centurion whose faith exceeded Israel's. Jesus saw the blind man in the temple. Jesus saw Zacchaeus and the Canaanite woman. Jesus saw Pontius Pilate. Jesus saw the image of God in every face of every person of any race. He even let his betrayer kiss him on the cheek. John 14, 27, Jesus said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. You get that? See, there's a peace that the world offers and then there's a peace that Christ offers. Don't confuse the two. And then Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So if day after day after day after day after day your hearts are troubled, and if day after day after day after day after day your hearts are afraid, maybe you're chasing after the wrong peace. And what was his peace? His peace came when he was unjustly accused of disrupting peace, after which he was brutally flogged, viciously beaten, and then mercilessly crucified. And then he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Do you understand what the cross was about? The cross was about the justice of God and the love of God. Isn't that the cry that we've been hearing this week? We want justice. We want love. And God gave us both when he gave us the cross. He gave us justice because, you see, God is not going to sweep sin under the rug and, depend, and pretend it didn't happen. He's not going to ignore or dismiss disobedience. It's just not in his character. He's not going to let it go. His integrity demands justice. And on the cross, justice was satisfied. For on the cross, justice was met by means of a willing and qualified substitute. Jesus. And why would he do that? Well, that brings us to the love of God. Christ on the cross in love says, Father God, 
forgive them. Blame me. Blame me for Ferguson. Blame me for New York. Blame me for Rwanda. Blame me for Randy's unrighteousness. Pile every act of lawlessness, every act of looting, every act of brutality. Pile on every putrid thought and word and deed that Randy has ever committed. You blame me. Put that on me. Pile it on me instead of him. Justice and love meet at the cross. Righteousness and peace kiss one another. Adam and Eve fell because they trusted something on that tree. And in the miracle of grace, God rescues us and gives us his peace through another who hung on the tree. One tree ruptured the peace. Another tree restored it. It was on a tree that took Christ down. But that tree did not keep him down. Church family, on that third day, God raised Jesus from the dead, crucified, buried, raised, ascended, and seated. This Jesus, God vindicated by his resurrection, and he is the first of many to come who put their trust in him and And he has, seated at the right hand of the Father, sent his Holy Spirit to live in our lives and to make up the life of this church community, to create a new community of peace. And now we've been commissioned to be his agents of peace. And so we go out into those same jobs bringing peace. There's no peace to be found there. We bring it with us straight from the throne of our Savior. And we can enter these places and we can serve the honorable vocations such as police service and military service. We can enter the classroom as educators. We can build businesses. We can work in the arts, technology, agriculture, construction, medicine. We can bring peace. And this church campus can be used to make peace, to celebrate peace, and to train in the spiritual skill of peacemaking. We can ask questions like, okay, how can we hone our leadership skills to direct our companies, our community, our university toward the path of peace? And we can have discussions about race because we come to the table First of all, understanding that our primary identity is not as, as a Caucasian American or an African American or a Latino or Pacific Islander. Our primary identity is as brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, filled by the Holy Spirit under his rule, heirs of a coming kingdom, bodies that will be ultimately transformed, for God has not destined us to wrath but to Receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who loved us and gave himself for us so that we might be with him. That's what we bring wherever we go. So what are you bringing to the room you enter now that you know this reality, this truth? What are we bringing when we enter a room? When we walk through the doors of any given room, What enters the room with us? 
Will it be peace? Can we enter a hostile situation in peace as mercy-showing and shalom-making agents of peace? We can because we are a part of God's great peacemaking project. And even when a difficult conversation has to happen, we come as pioneers of peace. So now what? Well, two action steps. Action step number one. Would you please be willing to have a conversation with a brother or sister in Christ who is not of your race in which you begin the conversation by saying this, I would like to hear what's in your heart about matters of race. And just leave it at that. And in your conversation, do more listening than talking. Listen. Hear. Understand. You see, it doesn't surprise me that out there in the world, it's unsafe and people feel threatened or invisible or unloved. But let that never be the case here. Let that never be the case here. Let no one here feel unsafe. Let no one here feel threatened. Let no one here feel minimized or invisible or unloved. We are the body of Christ. We are brothers and sisters in Christ under the rule of King Jesus, the Prince of Peace, heirs of his kingdom. That's action step number one. Action step number two we're going to do right now. We're going to pray. We're going to pray a prayer of peace. Right now, I'm going to lead us through a responsive reading. And um, yours is a very simple response, but it, it needs to come from the heart. It's three simple words. Lord, bring peace. Lord, bring peace. Let's practice that on three. One, two, three. Lord, bring peace. Our Prince of Peace. In this season of Advent, we reflect on the peace you promise. Peace not as the world gives, but lasting, pervasive peace. We believe your promise and we ache for the day when all things are made new. As we await your second Advent, we pray for peace on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, bring peace. For the busy and overcommitted who rush about and miss your whisper, Lord, bring peace. For the burdened and weary, unable to lift their head to see you, Lord, bring peace. For our students working hard and striving for excellence in the season of finals, Lord, bring peace. For our single parents struggling each day to make ends meet and provide for their family, Lord, bring peace. For those whose jobs are a constant source of stress, Lord, bring peace. For those whose lack of employment is a constant source of stress, Lord, bring peace. For those who are sick, struggling towards health, Lord, bring peace. For those who see their family falling apart and don't know what to do, Lord, bring peace. For those who are anxious about tomorrow, Lord, bring peace. For places across the world and down the street that are broken from violence, Lord, bring peace. For Israel, Syria, Ukraine, Liberia, Ferguson, Cleveland, New York, Lord, 
bring peace. For our relationships with each other, so easily broken, Lord, bring peace. And most of all, do your changing work in our hearts so that we, your children, may be the bearers of peace to your world. Lord, bring peace. In the name of Jesus, our Prince of Peace, we pray. Amen.